for year of Sunday school. I'm thankful for each of those that taught, and they probably don't want to stand and be recognized, so I'm not going to make them, but uh, if we kind of go from youngest up to oldest, Patty, Jana, Andrea, Pastor Nick, Ryan, Mark Guy, uh, all taught this year, which means that every Sunday they came uh, not only uh, just prepared to participate in worship with the church, but they came prepared to lead and teach a lesson uh, and volunteered to do that week in and week out. And I'm thankful uh, for each of those people and their work in that. I'm thankful for a worship team uh, who could help us sing today. I'm thankful for these seniors. I'm thankful that we have hope that goes beyond now. Uh, Pastor Nick prayed a bit for uh, Steve Smuck, and I've got to, gotten to be with him a couple times over this week. Uh, he is now at the hospital uh, and, and anticipating, like, this is, these are his final days before he goes to be with Jesus. Um, and, uh, and knowing, like, the future, sure, the price it has been paid, until with joy I stand before the throne, to be waiting for that and really nothing else is really, uh, for those who are in Christ, not all that bad of a spot to be, but it's challenging for the rest of the family. So if you'd continue in prayer for Randy and others in the family as well, uh, that would be great. So much, uh, like I said, to be thankful for. Uh, I'm thankful personally that God gave me a loving, godly wife. Uh, and if you know her, you know uh, probably just a fraction of, of what she is for me, for our family, for our church. And I'm so grateful for her. Um, we've eaten a lot of meals together. Um, we actually both worked in our college cafeteria. Uh, and then at one meal we met uh, through mutual friends, and we ate a meal together. That's how we, how we met each other. We went on our first one-on-one date by having a meal together, and later, when I proposed to her, we went to that same restaurant and shared another meal together, and then uh, we got married. Uh, actually, 22 years and two days ago, uh, we were married uh, up at a little church, the church that she had grown up in, had a wedding celebration, and then we just walked down the hallway to the church fellowship Paul uh, for a reception and shared a meal with 200 plus people uh, that just got to enjoy celebrating what God had already done and was yet to do in our lives. And since then, God has given us three children. We've shared countless meals with serious conversations and lots of laughter around a table together as a family. Uh, and, And the truth is, we eat with people we love. We eat with the people whom we love. And as we go through the gospel according to Luke today, we see more controversy brewing between Jesus and a group of religious conservatives called Pharisees and their scribes. And so we ask this question today. Who does Jesus eat with? Who does Jesus eat with? Like, would Jesus have fellowship with someone like me? Does Jesus only have fellowship with other people who are a lot like me? Or would Jesus have fellowship with people even who are very different from us? Maybe even with people who seem to stand for everything we stand against. Would Jesus eat with them? What does that mean for us? Today's message, I hope, is encouraging. It might make us uncomfortable. Whatever God wants to do with it, that's what I want done with it this morning. But I'm going to say at least this, that it would be good for us 
not to be so tied to our traditions and so convinced of our own righteousness that we forget the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. This is good news, and I want us to hear that today. If you're able to, would you stand? We'll pray to that end, and then I'll read the very Word of God. Father, thank you. Thank you that you give us your word. Thank you that by it we can know you, that through it we can know ourselves. And so, God, where there's any sort of like hard shell, hard heartedness at all in us today, would you break through that? Would you take old hearts and make them new? Would you take minds kind of stuck uh, in selfish patterns and would you would you remind us again of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this passage for your glory in Jesus name amen so today we look at Luke 5:27 to 39 here's the word of the lord after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable, no one tears a piece of a new, from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. You can be seated. Here's a sermon notes page inside your bulletin if that's helpful for you to follow along. Josiah, could you just turn my microphone up just a little bit? I uh, sang really loudly today, uh, and I don't want to lose my voice. Thank you. Um, First point is this, following and feasting. Following and feasting. A couple of weeks ago, earlier in the Gospel according to Luke, we saw Jesus call some blue-collar fishermen to leave everything and follow him, and they did it. But you heard me in today's account hear of another one called to follow Jesus, but this time not blue-collar fishermen, but a white-collar guy. In fact, a guy who is a tax collector. Later in the Gospel according to Luke, we're going to meet Zacchaeus. He is chief tax collector. This is just kind of like a normal tax collector who would have a booth there in town. We're told here that his name is Levi. Levi, just kind of like Simon was Simon's name, but then Jesus kind of renamed him Peter. Levi, Matthew, uh, same guy. Okay, so the gospel according to Matthew, 
That's Matthew, the tax collector. Almost certainly this is referring to, like, not, probably not coincidental that Matthew and Levi both had, you know, like, those were two names of the same person. Uh, and Matthew was a tax collector. Here, Levi, tax collector. Jesus calling him to follow him. Okay, so author of one of the four Gospels, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. That's the guy we're talking about here. His name is Levi. He's just sitting doing his business. He's at his tax booth, and Jesus says to him, follow me. Quick note about what a tax collector did. They collected taxes, okay? Um, and, and just like you probably aren't super happy, but like, ah, taxes, yes. In that day, even less so, because tax collectors were seen as sellouts, especially in the area of, of Palestine there, where the Jewish people saw the Roman Empire as an occupying force, and this guy's collecting taxes that would fill the pockets of the Roman Empire, and take advantage, oftentimes tax collectors would take advantage of the people because they knew they could skim a little bit off the top for themselves. So they were often wealthy. They were often very smart people. They were often able to speak multiple languages. They were good at math, but they weren't loved by most people because of their job as a tax collector. They were like a sellout, a traitor uh, to their people is how people saw them. But it's this man that Jesus comes to. We see in verse 27, after this, he went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And what does he do? Verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Leaving everything, it says. Now you think about this. A couple weeks ago, when Peter and the other fishermen leave everything, they could get back into fishing. In fact, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he finds them fishing, right? So they can get back to fishing anytime they want. Think about this for Levi. His, his uh, life really depended on this income that he had as a tax collector. If he leaves his post as a tax collector, he's not going to get that job back, okay? So, so in, in a sense, him leaving everything, he might be sacrificing more than Peter and some of those other guys did. Regardless, what we do know is that he is somebody who God changes his heart. That's the, only, that's the only kind of explanation you can have of this. That this man who is kind of raking it in as far as the world goes suddenly sees Jesus as more valuable than anything that he can take in by being a tax collector. So he leaves that and he follows Jesus. Leaving everything, he follows him, it says in verse 28. The word repentance isn't really, it's not used here, but I think that's really what we're seeing. You see a man living a probably dishonest life, just living for, for the riches of the world, suddenly changing his mind, changing his behavior, and now following Jesus. Verse 29, what's this guy going to do? His life has just changed. You just lost your job. What are you going to do? Throw a party. Okay? He, he just lost his job, but he gained Jesus. And so what does he do? Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And if you're having a great feast, you've got to have a lot of people come. Think about the kind of people that Levi would have known. He was rejected by all of the kind of like religious Jewish people because of his role. He was not a culturally acceptable kind of guy. So who are his friends going to be? Who is, who's he going to roll with? Other tax collectors and people that have a reputation as sinners. And so that's who he invites to the feast in his house. Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others 
reclining at table with them. Okay? So this is, this, this is the scene. And then you're gonna, we're going to see a problem. Well, what, what's the problem? I mean, Jesus just called a guy to follow him, and he did it. That's one less, one less tax collector, right? Uh, what, what's the problem? Well, we're going to see that here in these following verses. Problem, and I put quotes around that word number one, is this. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. We've seen, last week we were introduced to these Pharisees. I'll talk more about them today. But the controversy started when the Pharisees heard Jesus say to a man, your sins are forgiven. And they know that only God can forgive sins, and so they're wanting to to protect God's people and to keep God's law, and so they call Jesus out. Controversy, when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's going to be more controversy this week. Look at it in verse 30. Yes, 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing this? A quick note about Pharisees and their scribes. We, we often talk about them. If you've been in the church for a while, you hear Pharisees and immediately you think bad guys. I don't want us to immediately think that because put yourself in the shoes of the people in that day. Put yourself in the shoes of a Pharisee. Pharisees would be rightfully called religious conservatives. Okay? They're people who were concerned with making Israel moral again. They were looking at Israel and the decline in morality, the luxurious uh, living, the immoral living that was being celebrated, the way in which God's people seemed to more and more just be living like the world around them. And they're concerned about that. They know that God has given them the law. And they're to follow the law, not to follow the world. So that's the kind of people the Pharisees are. And they were so careful to try to follow God's law that they added some of their own traditions to make it even more stringent than it was so that they would live in a way that pleased God and not participate in the moral decline of the world around them. You get who they are? That's who the Pharisees are. They did so, one of the ways they did this was by separating themselves from others. Right? And so that's actually where their name came from. Uh, their name Pharisee uh, comes from a Hebrew word meaning separated ones. It's probably not a name they gave themselves. It's probably a name that other people gave to them, right? Oh, they're, they're, they're separate. Like they, they're, they're like too good for us, right? They, they know God's law and they try to follow it so closely. And so they got called Pharisees. They had some influence, but the problem with being a Pharisee is they usually didn't have any formal position of power. They were often this small minority that had some influence on the people around them, but they wanted more because they saw everything heading in the wrong direction and they wanted to get it turned around. Okay? So that's what a Pharisee and their scribes are. And so now you might start to see why this might be a problem in their eyes. Because the people that Jesus and his disciples are eating with are the very people that they see as the core of the problem of why things are going so badly in Israel. These are, these are the worst of the worst, and, and, 
And they, they, like, they represent to the Pharisees the, the reason that, that Israel is falling apart. And so they see Jesus, this man that suddenly has way more influence than they do, and they feel threatened by this man who has influence, and then they see him eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they start grumbling. Notice they don't even go to Jesus himself. They go to Jesus' disciples, maybe intimidated by Jesus and the authority that he seems to have. But it says, they grumble to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, is Jesus going to apologize and say, oh, you're right, I didn't know who these people were, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be eating with them. You're right. Is that what Jesus is going to do? Look what Jesus does, verse 31. Verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. He just uses a quick illustration. Who needs a doctor? Sick people or well people? Now, health insurance plans in the first century didn't cover uh, annual well exams, right? So, so they didn't go to see a doctor if they were doing well. They didn't have health insurance plans either, by the way. Uh, but they didn't go see a doctor if they were doing well. You would go see a doctor if you knew you were sick and you needed some help, Right? That's the way some of you still are. Like, yeah, maybe they'd pay for an annual exam, but I'm not going to that. I'm only going to a doctor if I'm almost dead, right? That's the way some of you are. Jesus is saying, you know who needs a doctor? Not people who think that they're well or people who are well, but people who are sick. Those are the ones who need a doctor. And then Jesus says this in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus calling himself the doctor and implied in him calling himself the doctors, would you criticize, think about this, would you criticize a doctor for spending too much time with sick people? No, like that's what a doctor's supposed to do, right? And they're criticizing Jesus for spending time with sinners. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm supposed to do. I've not come to call the righteous. Now, Jesus isn't mistaken. Jesus knows that no one is righteous, not even one. Right? He's talking to Pharisees who think they're righteous. And he's letting them know, I've not come to call the righteous. You who think you're doing just fine without me. I've come to call sinners. And then he says, not just to call sinners, to repentance. Right? He's not just coming to hang out with sinners and let them know, patting them on the back, I love your sin. He's coming to be with sinners and to call them to repentance, to have their mind and behavior changed. That's what Jesus is coming to do. So you get the Pharisees. They, I just heard somebody say this week, there, there's two kinds of people in the world. The people that split everybody into two groups or the people that don't. Right? The Pharisees are the kinds of people that split everybody into two groups. And you know what the two groups are? Sinners and the righteous. Right? Sinners and the righteous. That's the two groups. There are sinners in the world, and there are righteous people like us. The few, the proud, the Pharisees. Right? We're trying really hard to obey God's law. Everybody else is just compromising left and right. And so we're doing fine. Everybody else is a sinner. And Jesus declares to them, listen, I've come not to call the righteous, but to, to call the sinners to repentance. Yeah. So, we're kind of seeing how they see a problem, and Jesus is saying, this isn't a problem. 
right? It's not a problem. I'm doing what I've been called to do. All right, so another problem comes up. Verse 33, there's a complaint here. Now, we don't know if this is coming from the Pharisees. It says they, and we would think they're talking about the Pharisees here, but they, in this quote, say the Pharisees. Maybe it's Pharisees and they're referring to themselves as the Pharisees, or maybe it's another group of people at a different time. Regardless, there's another quote-unquote problem. What's the problem this time? Verse 33, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Okay, So if you're starting to list off like these holy people that other people are following, Their disciples are fasting and praying. That's what holy people do. What are Jesus' disciples doing? Not fasting and praying. They're eating and drinking. And so that's what they say. But yours eat and drink. So that's perceived to be another problem. Just a note. Fasting and praying... There were certain times, and lots of praying in the Old Testament, and fasting was required of God's people at certain occasions under the law. Fasting is just intentionally abstaining from food, not eating for a time in order to seek God and His work. Not surprisingly, even though there's only a few days in the year where the Jewish people were supposed to do this, remember the Pharisees, they're concerned about the moral decline happening around them. They're going to up it a little bit. In fact, by this time, there's some evidence that many of the Pharisees and some others were fasting two full days every week. Every Monday and every Thursday, devoted to fasting and praying, not eating. Okay, And so, you can understand, it looks like quite a contrast. They're doing this, and Jesus' disciples never seen fasting. In fact, where are they, just, they were just seen feasting instead. Okay? So they're just pointing out again, like, are you sure this is the kind of guy you want everybody to be following? He doesn't look all that holy, nor do his disciples. Jesus' response, again, it's not going to be, oh, sorry, I just forgot about fasting. I'll try to do better next week. That's not his answer. What's his answer? Verse 34. His answer is this. And Jesus said to them, he's going to use another illustration. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Acknowledging there's going to be a time when Jesus is put to death, when he is raised from the dead and ascends up to heaven, and there will be a time for fasting for his disciples, but that time is not right now. Now is a time for feasting, because Jesus, the groom, is with them. You don't fast at a wedding party. You feast. I mean, think about it. Again, 22 years ago, 22 years and two days ago, when Kirsten and I had that wedding, let's say we invite everybody to the fellowship hall for a reception afterwards, we get down there and we hand everybody a cup of water and then send them home. That doesn't seem like much of a party. That doesn't seem like much of a feast. That doesn't seem fitting for that occasion. And Jesus is saying it's not fitting for them to fast while the bridegroom is with them. Put it in the context of kids. Kids, let's say it's your birthday and your parents say you can have a birthday party at your house. 
So you're excited to play with your friends, to get some gifts, and you're excited to eat probably a lot of junk, like cake, like all stuff that your mom would normally say, let's not eat so much of that. It's your birthday party. Go nuts. What if your friends come over for your birthday party? Mom's like, everybody, come on to the kitchen. I've steamed some broccoli. You're like, huh? Like that just doesn't seem right for your birthday party. Steamed broccoli. Jesus is just saying, you're not supposed to fast when the, when the bridegroom is there, it's the wedding feast right now. Okay? Then he's going to use another illustration in verse 36. Oh, wait, we're not there yet. Are we there yet? Yeah, well, let me just mention this. I'm just looking at my notes. Sometimes I just talk and don't look at my notes. They're so focused on fasting that they're missing the point. That's the problem here. They think the problem is that Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting. The real problem is they're missing the point. That being with Jesus is a reason to celebrate. In fact, all of us were told in Revelation chapter 19 that we will one day join in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. We get to join at a wedding party with the groom, Jesus, present. With the church as his bride, celebrating together. This is something we look forward to. And they're totally missing the point. Because they're just wondering, well, shouldn't you be fasting? Right? It's Monday. It's Thursday. Shouldn't you be fasting? They think that Jesus enjoying a feast with tax collectors and sinners, whom he's calling to repentance, and his eating and drinking with his disciples when they could be fasting, they think that's the problem, but they're missing the point. Maybe a joke I heard this week will help illustrate this. So a guy walks up to a counter, and the lady, the lady standing behind the counter, the guy walks up to the counter, and he says, I'll have the $7 meal deal. I'll do the cheeseburger, fries, Coke, and a hot fudge sundae, please. And the lady behind the counter says to him, Sir, you're in a library. And the guy looks around, and he goes, Sorry, I'll have the $7 meal deal. Cheeseburger, fries, Coke, and a hot fudge sundae. He's missing the point, right? The, the point isn't he's supposed to make his order more quietly. The point is that lady there is not there to, to, to serve him a cheeseburger, fries, Coke, and a hot fudge sundae, right? The, the Pharisees, they don't have bad intentions. These other people questioning Jesus, whether they're Pharisees or not, they don't have bad intentions. They're just missing the point. It's not about fasting. It's not about eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is here, and they're missing him. All right, verse 36. Now we're there. Verse 36. Jesus is going to use a series of parables to redefine the real problem. If they're missing the point, they're saying, this is a problem. Jesus says, that's not the problem. Well, this is a problem. That's not the problem. What's the real problem? Well, here's where Jesus is going to be a bit offensive and kind of point the fingers at them and basically tell them, you're the problem. Look at it. Look at verse 36. Verse 36 says this, He told them a parable, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. I mean, just imagine this. You've got a pair of jeans that is your favorite pair of jeans. And they get a hole in them, and you don't want a hole in them. So you go buy a new pair of jeans, and you rip up the new pair of jeans and put a patch on your old ones. Chances are, the, the new pair is not going to match the old faded pair of jeans, and now you just ruined a new pair of jeans. 
feel like both the new and the old seem to be destroyed when you try to do that, right? Okay? So the point is you can't mix old and new without damaging both. He's going to tell the same parable uh, or a similar parable, new illustration. Look at verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, okay, so as, as the wine ferments, it starts to expand and, 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 and does some things to the wineskin. And if it's in an old wineskin that's already become brittle, what's going to happen? It's going to break. So again, Jesus says, if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Again, same, same idea. If you try to mix the new and the old, you're going to damage both. You put new wine in an old wineskin, you lost your old wineskin and you lost the new wine, right? If you try to put old and new together, like just mix them somehow, you're going to damage both. That's the point he's trying to make. And then he gets even more pointed in verse 39. Verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says, the old is good. He's pointing the finger back at these. Now, now you kind of see who's who in this picture. They're those that are, are really attached to the old, the old covenant, the old way of doing things, their own traditions that they've added onto it. And they're so attached to that that they cannot, and, and they're like, well, maybe, maybe is there a way we can mix it? And Jesus makes it clear. No, you can't. You're going to damage both. It's Jesus and only Jesus. And he's pointing out that they're the kind of people that are so attached to their traditions that they're rejecting him. All right. So, there's the passage. We covered a lot of ground, really. Uh, Levi being called, Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus and his disciples not fasting, the parables that help Jesus explain what the real problem is. I want to talk to us about our problem. Okay? that okay if I say we've got problems? We can admit it, right? He, he, let, me, let me just say this to start off. I am, just kind of show my hand, I'm a religious conservative, okay? I am a religious conservative. I'm an evangelical Christian who is concerned that the world around us is a moral mess, okay? Are there others of you out here that are maybe like me in that way, looking at the world around us and saying, wow, I'm a little concerned about some things. I'm concerned about the effect that the sex and gender revolution is going to have on generations to come. I'm sickened by how many people believe it's a human right to take the lives of unborn babies. I think the idea that everybody gets to decide for themselves what is good and true is dangerous. I'm concerned, and maybe you are with me, that the world around us is losing its moral mind. Are you concerned, maybe even with me, that even many of God's people within the church are also becoming too much like the world around us? Do you believe with me that the, the Word of God, the Bible, is, is truth and should be believed and obeyed? Do you believe that the world would be a better place if more people believed and obeyed what the Word of God said? Well, if you can agree with me on those things, you have to admit with me we're probably in danger of being more like the Pharisees than we'd like to think we are. If you read the Bible and see Pharisees only as the bad guys and put yourself in the good guy category, 
you're pretty much acting just like a Pharisee. They're all the bad guys and I'm the good guy. If anything's going to be like held together, it's going to be up to me and, and my little posse. Remember, they saw themselves at the, as the righteous ones and others were the sinners, right? We're the ones who have it all together. They're the sinners out there. And the tragedy is that Jesus told them that He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, if you are one who kind of like puts yourself always in the category of the good guys, you're always the righteous. You're the ones just trying to hold on to things while everything else is spinning out of control. It's very possible that you would be missing the point for which Jesus came. Because Jesus came not to call the righteous, but He came to call sinners to repentance. So, do you know that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior? Do you know that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior? Here's the good news. I told you about our problem. Here's the good news. The good news is, Jesus came to save sinners like us. Church, Let's not be so tied to our traditions and convinced of our righteousness that we forget the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. And I is one, right? Romans 3.10 says this, No one is righteous, not even one. I often use 1 Timothy chapter 1 as a benediction and include in it the part where Paul says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. D.L. Moody once said, I've had more trouble with myself than with any other man that I've ever met. Our world is a moral mess. It's right to acknowledge that. But if we, the only thing we do is look at others and see them as the problem and spend our lives grumbling about it, then we have a problem. But if we can more like Paul acknowledge Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that's good news for all of them, because they is bad, right? No, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Like, I'm included in that group. That's what makes this good news good, that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, and I'm a sinner who needs to repent. The rest of that passage continues in this way. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And so I encourage you, wherever you're at today, uh, to, for the first time or once again, admit that you're a a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. And that you believe that Jesus is the only one who can save. That He has come and He has called, He has has lived the life we failed to live and died the death we deserve to die so that we might be forever reconciled to Him by God's grace through faith alone in Him. We're going to close today by singing the song, There is a Fountain, which has a great verse in it. Speaking of the man who on the cross next to Jesus was dying, convicted criminal who had actually committed a crime, being executed for it. At some point in that moment, God changes this man's heart. And so we're going to sing this song where we have this verse saying, The dying thief rejoiced to see 
that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Church, let's be people who are not so quick to tie ourselves to our traditions, who are not so quick to be convinced of our own righteousness and everybody else's sin, that we forget the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for the good news that Jesus has come to call sinners to repentance. And I pray that You would help us to be less like Pharisees who are really quick to point out all the problems in other people while assuming that we're the righteous ones. Thank You for revealing the truth in Your Word that all have sinned and fall short of Your glory, that no one is righteous, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of Your glory. But God, would You help us to trust in Christ and to be more like Christ, who spent time with all kinds of morally messy people, calling them to repentance. I pray that many more in Iowa Falls would hear the call of Jesus to follow Him and leave everything behind, convinced that Jesus is better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.